0: You can open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Today, we are going to take a break from our regular walk through the book of Matthew. And we are going to, today and next week, do some kind of review sermons looking at the whole of Matthew 1 to 12. We've reached the end of Matthew 12, and that's a good breaking point for us to resume after Christmas with Matthew 13. And so I thought it would be helpful to look at some themes that we've seen from the book of Matthew in the book of Matthew itself as we go through. And so I say open your Bible to Matthew There's going to be a fair amount of scripture and you may not be able to keep up. So the scripture is going to be up on the screen with you. But I want to encourage you, if you're able, to try to flip back and forth. Because I think these will be helpful things to see in your own Bible. As we've gone through the book of Matthew, when I started walking through the book of Matthew, I said, here is how I would summarize this book. And it goes like this. Jesus, the Messiah King... Climatically fulfills the Old Testament by inaugurating the kingdom of heaven through his life, death, and resurrection, creating a new redeemed people of God and fitting them to follow him in the global mission of God. This is a summary, a theological summary, of what I think the book of Matthew is trying to get across to us as a gospel of Jesus Christ about Jesus, who he is, and what he does. We've titled this series, The King and His Kingdom, because those two pieces capture the main components of what I believe the book of Matthew is telling us about Jesus, the king and his kingdom. And so that's going to be the breakdown, if you will, of how we're going to approach looking at Matthew 1 to 12 as a whole. We're going to look at it through the lens of king this week, and then we're going to look through it at the lens of kingdom next week. So this week, we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah King. You can see that's all I highlighted. Some of it flows into the other aspects, but the other aspects are really about what he does in terms of establishing his kingdom. And so we're going to look at the kingdom next week, and we're going to look this week at Jesus as the Messiah King. I think it's important for us, though, before we tackle the topic of Jesus as king from the book of Matthew, to think about this question of why do we even need a king? Because we, as people living in 21st century America, aren't real familiar with the concept of king. We don't have kings, right? And so we don't, we don't feel this longing of, man, I wish there was a good king and Jesus is here and praise the Lord, right? We don't feel it in the same way as Israel did. But I would argue that even though we don't have kings, we do have leaders who we look to to solve our problems, We know that bad leaders will be disastrous to us as a community or as a nation, and we know that good leaders will bring flourishing. This is why we can be tempted to hope that if we just had the right leader, everything would be okay, right? Elections are coming up this week, and we might be tempted to think if we just got the right people in power who were our good leaders, that all of us would flourish, We might be tempted at work to think if we just had the right leader, the right boss, maybe things would go better. Maybe things would be happy. Maybe I would be satisfied. We can be tempted in all areas of life to look to leaders as the hope to solve our problems. And I think our longing for good leadership, even though it doesn't take the form of give me a king, is an echo of the longing for a good king. We see this all through the storyline of the Bible. Think about the Bible for a minute. Think about Genesis. We have this rebellion against God as the good king. And then we have God reestablishing a people in Abraham. And part of the promise he makes to Abraham is that kings will come from you. This people need a leader who is going to lead you in righteousness. We see in the book of Exodus that Israel is enslaved by a wicked king, Pharaoh. right? And then they're delivered. By Yahweh as a good king, with Moses as his representative. We see in Deuteronomy even directions given for what a good king ought to look like. And when they get into the land, how should they think about kingship? We see in the book of Judges that even as they start to go into the land, there's eventually this tendency that everyone has because of sin to just do what is right in their own eyes. And part of the problem Judges identifies is there's no king in Israel. We see the horrific nature of sin as everybody just does what seems best to them. We see in Samuel this hope of a good king in David as Saul rises up and is shown to be a bad king. And David rises up and is shown to be much better because God has selected him. And yet we see his fall in the book of Samuel. And we see after him king after king after king in the book of Kings fail. And we see the need for a better king. All the way up to the Babylonian exile as Israel is taken out of the land. And we see that kingship in Israel failed. And the kingdom that was supposed to represent the kingdom of God failed. And it's this failure that leads us into the New Testament then. And that Matthew comes on the scene proclaiming there is a new king and a new kingdom here that is actually bringing hope to God and his people. So my goal this morning, as we look at the theme of kingship in Matthew and how it connects to all of these things, is that we would see in Matthew 1 to 12, not just that Jesus is king, because I'm assuming you guys know that. I'm assuming it's not something that's news to you to say that Jesus is king. Okay, maybe, and if it is, I want to convince you that it's true. But for, assu- for those of you who it's not news to you, I want to give you confidence that Matthew clearly declares that Jesus himself is this Messiah king, this long awaited anointed king who's going to rescue God's people. I want to convince you that he is king and give you confidence that he is king, but I also want us to see from Matthew that not only is he king, but he is a good king. He is worthy of both our affection and our allegiance. I'm hoping that as we look at the picture of Jesus as king in Matthew, that we will see that. He is worthy of our affections, that because of what he does and who he is, that it is right to be glad in him. It is right to honor him. It is right to find rest in him. And I want us to see that because he is a good king who is worthy of our affection, he is also worthy of our allegiance. It is right and good that we would follow him. So this morning, as we walk through bits and pieces of Matthew 1-12, to This is the argument I want to make for us. That Jesus is the Messiah King. As the Messiah King, that Jesus is worthy of our affection and allegiance. And because this is true, follow him. Right, Which will be the implication. In other words, the argument is that Jesus is the Messiah King. And therefore, we ought to follow him. I want to look at that first through the lens of Jesus is the Messiah King. And this is where we're going to start digging into the book of Matthew. One thing you'll notice though in Matthew is that if you search for the word king, you won't actually find Jesus himself declaring that he is king. It's really interesting if you look for the word king in Matthew, all you'll see is that other people talk about him in terms of his kingship. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know he was king or didn't think of this himself this way. In fact, the very nature of the kingdom that he is bringing implies that there is a king, and he is the kingdom bringer, is that king. But I think there's better evidence for us to be sure, to be, have confidence that Jesus is this Messiah king. And it's found in these other words that bring concepts of kingship without even saying the word king. And so those are the words I want us to look at. First of all, Jesus is the Messiah king, and we see this in the declaration that he is the Christ. So the first place where someone else talks about the king to come is in Matthew chapter 2. This is the wise men visiting King Herod. And we see this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Notice the connection. Herod is being asked about where the king of the Jews is. And what does he ask his wise men to find out? Where is the Christ to be born? That's connecting this idea of king and Christ. Christ which we have in chapter 1, right? The book of Matthew starts off, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy, or Genesis, the beginning, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Most of you have been in church longer and long enough that you've heard me even say it probably, Christ is not Jesus' last name. This is a, a title, right? When we talk about Christ, we're talking about the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the same This is Christos translating Mashiach in Hebrew. This is the same word translating the anointed one like we saw in Isaiah 61 in our reading during the liturgy. This is Christ, God's anointed one who will be a coming deliverer and king who will usher in the kingdom of God. All of the references to Messiah and all of the expectation built up by God's people is for an anointed deliverer to come and rescue them. And so when they say Christ, and when people use Christ to refer to Jesus in the book of Matthew, they are using kingship language, to kingly title. Jesus is the Messiah king is another way of saying Jesus is the Christ, the king. We see it not only in the word Christ in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, but we see in Matthew 1.1 1, 1, this reference to the son of David, which is also arguing that Jesus is this long-awaited king. It's so the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we went through that genealogy, you remember it listed all of those kings, all of that descent to show that Jesus is in the line of Abraham and the line of David. And the only one in that list to be called king is David. Even though there's a bunch of kings in there, the only reference to king is in Matthew 1.6, David the king. This is, I think, not accidental by Matthew, but this is highlighting that when he's talking about son of David and he's talking about David the king, he's talking about kingship language. He's making an argument that Jesus is king by royal descent. We see him highlight this as well in the birth narrative in Matthew 1.20. As Joseph is considering Mary being... Uh, being pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he's visited by an angel, and he says, "As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, "Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, highlighting Joseph 's descent from David, again making this argument that Jesus himself is the son of David, the rightful king." We see in Second Samuel 7, this promise. That there's this king that's going to come from the line of David that is going to establish the throne and kingdom of David forever. And when it's the kingdom of David, it's really the kingdom of God's people, right? The kingdom of God that's going to be established. So we see that Jesus is the Messiah king in both Christ and son of David, even from chapter one. But we see elsewhere a hint at another term for kingship. And that is the fact that he is called the Son of God. We normally, when we think Son of God, think of describing Jesus' divinity, right? The fact that he's the Son of God means that he's divine. And that's true. But in biblical language, Son of God is also kingship language. Take, for example, Psalm 2, which brings these themes of king and son together. Psalm 2, quoted all over the New Testament in reference to Jesus as fulfilling these things, says this, for example. Then he, being the Lord, will speak to them, being the nations that are raging against God, in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. There was an expectation that the king would be God's, true son. Israel was supposed to be God's son, and within Israel, their king was supposed to be the preeminent son of God. And here we have in Psalms, those themes brought together, and they were fulfilled in earthly terms through earthly kings, but they're culminating in Jesus as the actual son of God, the literal son of God. And so we see this reflected in Matthew in places like Matthew three sixteen and 17. Remember, this is Jesus being baptized. And remember what happens at his baptism. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? Voice from heaven speaking to him As the son of God declaring, this is my beloved son. We'll see later at the Mount of Transfiguration, God say the same thing. This is my son. And he adds, listen to him. But this is what we've seen so far. We saw in Matthew 4 as well, the temptation narrative. Remember, he's led out into the wilderness after he's baptized. By the spirit. And what happens out in the wilderness? Satan tempts him by saying, if you are the son of God, Turn these stones into bread, right? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from this pinnacle. If you are the Son of God, in other words, test God. Jesus goes out into the wilderness as the Son of God in place of Israel, who ought to have done this rightly. But Jesus is able to do it rightly because not only is he the righteous Son of God, but he is the actual God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. We see in Matthew eleven twenty seven the closest thing we have in Matthew to a statement that sounds like it belongs in John, because John talks about these things all the time in his gospel. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Again, that is not just making a statement about Jesus' divinity, although that's true, it is. But what it's also adding to that is this idea that there is this king who is here. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited king who's going to rescue his people. He is the son of David. He fulfills all of those promises. And he is the son of God. The one who knows the father and is able to reveal him. You might have noticed that one of the ways that Jesus refers to himself is as the Son of Man. I don't know if my... Let me see. My slide is not changing, so we'll give it a second. Ella, can you change it to the next slide, please? The Son of Man. Thank you. We'll see that Jesus declares himself to be the Son of Man in Matthew 8.20. This is the first time he mentions it. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, this is Jesus' favorite term for himself, it seems like, in the Gospels. He refers to himself this way in 8.20, in 9.6, in 10.23, 11.19, 12.8, 12.32, 12.40, right? You get the idea. He's referring to himself this way. He doesn't say Christ. He doesn't say Son of God. He doesn't say Son of David most frequently. Those are things others say about him. But he often says Son of Man. And this might be confusing for you if you were not familiar with Daniel 7. Those of you who have been in Bible study Wednesday nights, we've looked at Daniel 7 together, right? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is where this language comes from. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, for Jesus to refer to himself as Son of Man is actually to claim kingship. He's not talking about the fact that he was born of a person, uh, of of a human being, born of Mary. Right? He's not. He's not talking about that. He's grabbing language from Daniel seven and saying, giving subtle hints. That should be really obvious, more like a blaring sign that says, I am actually the king you've been waiting for. Jesus is this Messiah King. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of David. He is the Christ. And we ought to have tremendous confidence that this is the one that all of God's promises are pointing towards. This is the one that fulfills all of those promises. As we look at the implications then of this, I want to think about why, as Messiah King, he is worthy of our affection and allegiance. In other words, why is he good? Because it's, it's one thing for him just to be a king, but it's another thing for him to be a good king, right? We have horrible tyrants all the time. But Jesus himself is a good king who is worthy of following. He is worthy of our affection and worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy, first of all, because he fulfills all of God's promises. We see this in Matthew all over the place. These are just some of them. Matthew 1, 22, Matthew 2, 15. Matthew 2, 17. 2, 23. 4, 14. 8, 17. 12, 17. We're going to see more. This is just through chapter 12. All of this language, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Right? We see that over and over. All this happened to fulfill. Then what was fulfilled? What was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, etc. Jesus, as Messiah King, is fulfilling all of God's promises. He is climactically fulfilling all of the Old Testament expectations. All of the Old Testament promises that God has made to his people find their fulfillment in Jesus. We can't just look to fulfill language, though, to find that. If we look other places, like in Matthew 2, 5, for example, we have in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. We have other language, even in Matthew 1 to 12, besides just the word fulfill. You can trace a bunch there, and it sure seems like Matthew's doing that on purpose. But even if you look beyond that, you can see more language that talks about the ways that Jesus himself brings to fruition these promises. Matthew 3 3, uh, 3, 3, spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Or Matthew nine thirteen when Jesus says, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament and saying it's about him. We read about in Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, as Jesus is explaining on the road to Emmaus, the word of the Lord to these disciples. He's explained to them how all of the scriptures point to him. And here we see that. We see that all of the scriptures point to this fulfillment. And Matthew really wants to highlight that for us. Matthew itself, the the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, has over 60 Old Testament citations. More than any other gospel. And it has numerous allusions and echoes of the Old Testament. In other words, places where it's language from the Old Testament, like that Son of Man language. Jesus isn't saying... FYI, guys, I'm quoting Daniel 7, right? He just says, Son of Man, and we're supposed to pick up on that. Matthew is full of that. And all of it is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, it's important you understand something about fulfillment, that we understand something about fulfillment. This is not merely talking about prediction. In other words, the point Matthew's making with all of this language is not Look, they predicted it, and look, now it came true, and therefore you can trust it. That is a point, but that's not the primary point. That's, that's not just like, wow, look at all these, all these predictions and how trustworthy Jesus is. That is true. But it's so much more than that. And you can see it in the last one there on the screen, Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is not saying, I've come to show you that the law is true, right? Or that the law actually happens, like you do bad things and then there's a consequence and some of those kind of things. He's not talking about that, right? He's talking about so much more. He's talking about bringing the law itself to fruition, to its intended purpose, to its telos, we say. It's a Greek word that is beautiful that means the end result that it was intended for. He's bringing it to its end, not the end as in stopping, but the end as in its purpose. When Jesus, when Matthew says that Jesus fulfills all of these Old Testament pictures, he's saying that Jesus is bringing all of this to fruition. All of it to its intended purpose or end. And this is so important, friends. This is what Jesus is doing. He is bringing all of the Old Testament to fulfillment. Starting with Genesis 3.15. The promise after God's people rebelled against him as their rightful king. That one day he would send an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is that fulfillment. This is why Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. To show that there's been offspring and offspring and offspring, and now the offspring is here. Jesus is bringing all of those things, all of those promises of God to fulfillment. And then, as he brings these things to fruition, he then proclaims to those around him that they are brought to fruition. He's preaching the good news to a people that are in darkness. Right? Think about the way Matthew describes the situation of the people through the ministry of John the Baptist. Right, Matthew 3, 1-2, to 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's people had gone astray. God's people had done what is right in their own eyes. Exile did not take Egypt out of God's people. They still pursued false gods. So much so that their leaders were totally corrupt, right? John rebukes their leaders as the Pharisees and Sadducees come to be baptized. He says in Matthew 3 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You spawn of Satan, who told you that this is the way out? You just want to do what is right in your own eyes. He says so much uh, to the effect in Matthew 9 that. As Jesus saw these crowds, he realized that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is the state of the people that Jesus came. And he came bringing all of these promises of God to fruition. That God would rescue and redeem his people from themselves and from these false shepherds. And Jesus brings all of that and then looks out on this dark land and preaches, proclaims good news. We see that in Matthew four thirteen to 17, in beautiful language, even from the Old Testament. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, of shadow, uh, region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is preaching, proclaiming good news. Matthew 4.23, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's proclaiming or preaching the gospel or good news of the kingdom. Jesus himself is proclaiming that the kingdom of God or God's righteous reign is being established through him as king. This is good news for God's people. Their rescuer has come and the king that they need has arrived. It's going to be a king that is different than what they thought they needed, right? God's people at this time thought they needed a king to free them from the oppression of the Romans. And that's not really what Jesus is going to do in his kingship, right? He's going to free them from the greater oppression, which is the enemy within, right? Sin. He's going to establish the rule of God in their hearts. This is even what it means for him to be called Messiah or Christ. It's the one who has the spirit of the Lord and has been anointed by the spirit of the Lord to proclaim good news. Like Isaiah 61 says, he preaches good news, but he doesn't just preach good news. He actually does good news, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just proclaim that there's, that there's rescue. He actually rescues. He actually saves. Jesus is worthy because he saves his people. This, Matthew starts out right in chapter 1 telling us by his very name that he will save his people from his sins. Matthew 1:21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah that he'll be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus as king is able to save his people. He has the power, he has the authority He has the ability and he does it not through dramatic military means as Israel thought he might, right? He doesn't doesn't take and grasp for power. We see this in Matthew 4 as he goes out into the wilderness and Satan provides him a shortcut and says, Bow down and worship me and all of these kingdoms will be yours. And Jesus may have had in his mind... The amount of good that he could do with that kind of authority. And yet he knew that that was not a shortcut that he was willing to take. He knew that that was the way to actually harm his people. Destroy his kingship. Dishonor his father. He is a good savior. And he pursues salvation through good means. And then as the one who has been given authority, he uses it for the good of his people. Remember Matthew 8 and 9. Remember those 10 miracles. As Jesus cleanses lepers and casts out demons and heals the lame. As, cal- as he calms the sea. Remember what he does. All of that he's using his authority for the good of his people. He's ultimately using it to save his people like we see in Matthew 9, 6-7. Right? The paralytic is laying there. Jesus proclaims your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees think, how, how can this man claim to pro- forgive sins? And what does he say? He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Very simple miracle in Matthew, but super, super vital for us. Jesus himself, as this good king, has authority to forgive sins. The ability to save. Matthew twelve twenty-eight and 29, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Display this as well. As he talks about himself, he's arguing with the Pharisees, right? Over By who does he cast out demons? And he says it's because the Spirit of God is upon him. Again, that Isaiah language, the Spirit of God is upon him as God's anointed king. And that's why he can cast out demons. And he can do this because he has first bound the strong man. He is there to plunder his house. Jesus is coming in to enemy territory, to a land of darkness, to save and rescue his people. He is the spirit filled deliverer. And because of this, friends, he is worthy of our affection and our allegiance. He brings all of God's promises to fruition, most significantly, His promise to save from sin and death. His promise to deliver his people from themselves. Next week as we look at God's kingdom that is coming through Jesus Christ. We'll see more reasons why Jesus is worthy. We only have a limited amount of time to highlight a few. But I think these are the most significant. That as Jesus brings all of God's promises to fruition. He proclaims this good news to a people in darkness. And he saves them. He rescues them from sin and death. He is the Messiah King. And as the Messiah King, he is worthy of our affection and allegiance. And therefore, we ought to follow him. Right? There's not much I think we need to say this week about this theme of following him. Just two things that I want us to consider. One is that he is the Messiah King, and we ought to follow him, and therefore there's a warning and rebuke to those who refuse to follow him. We've seen this slowly develop in Matthew, that not everybody is happy to see this king come, right? In Matthew 2, what does Herod do? He's so upset he kills a bunch of children because he hates this king. He's a pretender to the throne, and he doesn't want to be dethroned. We see, even in, John th- or in Matthew 3, through the preaching of John, this idea of the king coming to judge, starting to develop. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a fire that is coming as the king comes. As he proclaims good news, the good news of liberty for captives, those captives who say, you know what, I'd rather stay captive, are going to have a problem. They're continuing to rebel and reject the king, to refuse his rule, and he will judge them. We've seen that starting to develop in the leaders of the church, as we've seen over Matthew 11 and 12, this theme of unrepentant cities who Jesus declares woes on. We've seen leaders who proclaim that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons and want nothing to do with him unless he gives them the sign. We've seen the crowds that demand that he dances to their tune, and he refuses to do so. There is a warning. He is worthy of following and we must follow him. But this is not, I think, the main tone that we see in the book of Matthew, at least in the first 12 chapters. The main tone, I think, we see is found in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 to 30. And that's an invitation to rebels to repent and to come and rest in him, to come and follow him. He says in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 to 30, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, this is the call to us this morning. Jesus is the Messiah king. As the Messiah king, he fulfills all of God's promises, especially his saving promises, and he is worthy therefore of you and me. Coming to him and following him, finding rest in him, taking his yoke upon us because it is easy and his burden is light, because our souls delight to be under the good king. And so this morning I commend him to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the sure testimony of the gospel of Matthew. Even in these first 12 chapters, what we have seen thus far of Jesus as king. It is unmistakable, Jesus, that you are the rightful king over the kingdom of heaven. That you are the rightful king come to give life, come to rescue As Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus, we long to take refuge in you. And so I pray that you would help us to have confidence that you are indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And to behold your worth in what you have done. And that you would fill our hearts with admiration and with allegiance. With, uh, uh, Lord, a... a a tiny grasp of your goodness and glory that increases every day and and a growing burden to follow you. I pray that you would do these works in our heart that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.